Here's a thought experiment. How many lessons in life can you remember learning the wrong way? Maybe they weren't all wrong, but just enough to complicate things for you. If you play a game of telephone at a dinner table, it's another good exercise to get into the topic we're talking about today. There are lots of ways that learning is social, but the game of telephone gives you pretty instant feedback about one way that can go wrong. And when you get the wrong message, in this case, maybe from your eight-year-old daughter, the stakes are very low downstream. In fact, the best part of the game is when the effect on the learner downstream is so egregiously silly when compared to the original message that everyone can enjoy a laugh. But we all know those other times exist when the game of telephone isn't actually a game. In fact, we may never know the information we received was wrong or how many times we passed it along ourselves, socializing what you've learned with the best of intentions. You see where I'm headed probably. What happens when you hard code one of those slight variations in our social understanding into a piece of media and a training platform that will be watched thousands of times by similarly unsuspecting good people who use it to make meaning in the world, maybe even do their jobs. If you look at the market research on training and simulation technology right now, you'll see startling numbers as large as $600 billion. And those are just companies making money in the space. Consider the benefits of an increasingly accessible media-making software and hardware ecosystem along with an internet that broadcasts teachings more ubiquitously than ever before. Almost anyone can be a trainer in the digital age. The connected world has quickly become a source for good and not so good technical assistance and training, but this episode should give you hope. I'm talking today with Daniel Reinholtz and Liza Bondurant. Here they are. Hi, I'm Daniel Reinholtz. I'm an associate professor at San Diego State University, and thanks so much for having me. Hi, I'm Liza Bondera. I'm an associate professor at Mississippi State University and looking forward to the conversation. Daniel, a researcher, and Liza, a teacher educator, are exactly the kind of team to conduct research about built-in bias in simulated teacher training environments. These two and a group of colleagues focused in this area are helping to identify when the message in the telephone game has been misprogrammed and helping teachers reflect on ideas and habits that, against their intentions, do the opposite of serving their students. In addition to their research, you'll learn about Equip, a tool developed by Dr. Reinholtz and Dr. Neeral Shah. It's a customizable observation tool for tracking patterns in student participation. The goal is simple, to empower teachers in building more equitable classrooms. Equip can be used in real time or with videos of classroom teaching. After completing an observation, Equip generates instant analytics that teachers can use to improve their practice. I think you'll get a lot from our conversation. Before we dive in, I want to say thanks to the listeners supporting the show. Over 120 episodes, if you count ones I've failed to number, and tens of thousands of downloads later, I feel even more adamant that our field needs spaces of our own, uninterrupted by commercial interests, to find truth together about where real innovation is emerging in the digital age. All I have had to ask so far is that you support the effort by helping me break through Apple's algorithm, which doesn't know yet that if you search for education podcast, you probably aren't asking for self-help or business shows. No shade at all to those categories. Jump on and offer a great review of the show. It's the best way to support No Such Thing and then recommend it to a colleague. 
Thank you for your support. Enjoy my conversation with Daniel and Liza. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. Thanks so much for being here. I've looked at the longer history of both of your research and practice, and it uh, shares a deep commitment in this area that we're talking about. And, And I hoped that we could actually start with you sharing a little bit about what motivates the equity focus of your work. Um, and then how did you find each other for this study? I think it's important to acknowledge that equity work doesn't happen overnight, right? We don't learn that in one workshop or one class that we take, but it's really something that evolves over the course of our entire lives. And so for me, I grew up in a small country town You know, my parents didn't go to college, not a lot of diversity and not a lot of awareness in that space. And so it wasn't really until my teenage years when I started getting really into music. I was I'm a drummer and I got really excited by punk rock music. And so I could get I had an outlet for my teenage angst and ready to stick it to the man. But I also started to learn about sort of global politics and justice in the world. And I really think that stuck with me even to today. Um, and I had a whole journey of missteps, but somehow I got into the university and I'm excited that I can do that research. And I, I think one other really fundamental moment in my trajectory growing up um, was when I was in college, I was really into gaming. So here's the technology connection for you. And I was on a gaming message board. But this was really exciting because you could talk to people from around the world. And that wasn't easy back then. And so I started to meet people from all over um, and just learning new cultures, perspectives and so forth. And that that was really foundational in changing my thinking. That's where I met my partner, Suparna, who was a political science student in India back then. And, you know, we just started dreaming about what a better world would look like. And we've been married almost 15 years now. So I really owe a lot to her for Mm. changing my perspective on how these things happen. Um, Professionally, I didn't start out doing equity work. I started doing very traditional classroom learning types of things. And then a number of years down the road, I learned that equity could actually be central to the kind of research that I was doing. Um, And that, that really started with the Equip project. Um, that we're going to talk about a lot today. Mm-hmm. That, that was a collaboration with Nirul Shah, who's a, a close friend, um, and he was a graduate student with me at Berkeley at that time. And we just had this ethos that if we were going to do research work, we wanted to impact practice right now. We didn't want to wait 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Um, you know, there's inequities for students today, and we wanted to do our part to reduce that a little bit. Yeah. And so the Equip tool... Um, This is just an approach that we developed that actually generate data about inequities, because very often we have impressions about what's going on in the Mm -hmm. classroom, but those impressions might not be accurate. Um, They're grounded in stereotypes. They're grounded in messages that we hear from the media or other places that might just not be true. And so when we actually have data that can tell us a little bit more about what's going on and we can use that as a way to start conversations with teachers or professors or whoever it might be. Um, It's hard to believe it's been about 10 years now. And so looking back, you know, now we have this method, we have processes for professional learning, and we have a a web app that people can use that's free and customizable. And so really, it was in the context of doing this work that Liza and I first met. I want to talk more about Equip in a minute, but uh, Liza, I want to give you a chance to 
talk a little bit about your your origin story with this area. Um, so I think that my equity journey began in college. Before college, similar to Daniel, I was kind of sheltered in a monolithic bubble. Uh, my K-12 public school was 100% white and 0% free reduced lunch. However, I was raised by parents who worked multiple manual labor jobs and did not attend college. Uh, and they always advised me to take an intellectual path mm. um, instead of a manual labor kind of path. Anyways, so um, I attended SUNY uh, and was exposed to many different races and cultures there. Um, and in college, I did a concentration in women's studies, and I was a TA for introduction to feminisms. I started to see some overlaps with feminisms, and like Daniel said, I realized that that could overlap with work in math education research. Um, so. In that role, I learned about systemic oppression and began to advocate for equity. Um, my teaching experience in K-12 in upstate New York, um, I also noticed and realized that teaching even math doesn't happen in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. And in order to be like an effective teacher, I needed to develop my own cultural competence and sociopolitical consciousness. So... <laughs> Towards the end of my graduate work, um, I decided to focus my dissertation study on predictors of ninth grade algebra achievement um, on the NAEP. So I found uh, some of the main predictors of achievement were socioeconomic status, race, and gender. So that just kind of, all of this was fuel for my curiosity fire. Um, and then- uh, Tell people what the NAEP Tell people what the NAEP is for those who don't know. Yeah, sure. Uh, NAEP is the National Assessment of Educational Progress. Uh, a lot of people refer to it as the nation's report card. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, in 2013, I moved from upstate New York to the Mississippi Delta. Um, and that summer, if you recall, it was um, the summer of the Trayvon Martin trial. And... Um, that was a critical <laughs> praxis in my life, I think, um, because that was occurring and I was shifting cultures um, geographically. Mm. Um, so during my initial years in Mississippi, I kind of just took it all in, mm. um, listened to different perspectives of people I met in Mississippi um, and learned that the local school district where my institution was was being forced to desegregate in 2016, which is 62 years after Brown versus the Board of Education. So all of this has ignited my passion for this equity work. Um, I wanted to change things, but I felt that I needed to start with myself. Um, but I didn't really know how to do it. So mm -hmm. that brings in Daniel. Um, at an AMT conference, um, I saw a presentation um, about Equipped and I also learned about a type of research called self-study. And both of those two blew my mind. And I said, I need to piece these together um, and study myself and my own equitable practices. Uh, so that's what I did. And then I presented it. Um, and Daniel gave me some guidance on a little poster I had made on my self-study, um, continued to correspond with Daniel. I have to kind of... Um, 
give him that kind of, I have to give Daniel a lot of credit um, for really fostering community among the equip users. Uh, he's been instrumental in my professional scholarship and I'm sure many others. <laughs> so yeah, uh, during COVID, um, I was using virtual um, mixed reality simulations with my pre-service teachers to provide them with opportunities to practice practice. So those were, um, I had been using them before COVID, but there I started using them more during mm. COVID because schools were closed and everything was online. Um, and in reviewing the recordings of those uh, and reading the transcripts, I was just noticing equity issues. So I reached out to Daniel again um, and asked him to kind of help me more in a more scholarly way, interrogate the data I had. Hmm. I want to talk about the study first, Daniel. So, so can you paint a picture starting from a few thousand feet up, pretending we know nothing about educator training? So what's the context of the issue? What spurred the hypothesis into being, um, you know, and non-description, non-research, you know, for the, the lay person, um, Describe methods, like how do we test this? And and uh, and I'm, I'm excited to get a little bit deeper into the work itself. Absolutely. So before we dive right into the study, we have to think about the context of teaching and teacher training in the U.S. And so let's just be clear, teaching is one of the hardest things you can do. Um, and it's very, very difficult to do it well. And especially in the United States, you know, teachers are expected to teach more than in most other countries. Teachers receive minimal support, um, not enough preparation time. They're not paid enough. Um, and I think as a country, sometimes we just don't respect teachers and give them really what they deserve as professionals. Mm. And so, so all of our work has been focused not on evaluating teachers, not on passing those judgments, but rather recognizing that these folks are doing extraordinarily important work in a really difficult context. And so how do we support them and how do we, you know, bring technology tools, if that's the case, to these situations to enhance their work? Um, and so this has always been challenging in the U.S., but I think especially over the past number of years with COVID um, you know, sort of the push for racial justice, which is long overdue. And a lot of these things happening, um, teachers are working in really complicated spaces. Mm -hmm. I think another challenge for teachers is that the vast majority of teachers in the U.S. are white women. And when you look at the demographics of their students, there's, there's sort of this mismatch um, either between race or culture and, and things like that. And so if, if we if we start with how complicated it is to form, you know, deep and meaningful relationships across cultures, across race, especially given the history of racism in this country, then that's something for us to really figure out. And it just adds to the work that teachers need to do in order to really teach their students math. Hmm. Right. So we're, math is a subject that we're working in here, but really. It's about relationships, human connections. How do we understand understand our students as individuals so that we can build on what they know and bring it forward? Um, I think another thing that makes things even more challenging is this race. You know, racial equity is something that we think a lot 
in about in schools, but it's it's really been hard to address. Over the past decades, there's been a lot of efforts that really haven't made a lot of progress. And and there's reasons for that. And we'll get into those reasons. Um, and I also think, you know, for a lot of white teachers and white folks in general, our awareness of racism um, just isn't where it needs to be, right? If, you know, as a white person, there's many spaces where I don't have to think about my race or that's not the, the thing on the front of my mind. And that means that I might miss the ways that interactions are racialized or that they mm. could be marginalizing for folks of color. And so how do we build that awareness? How do we help teachers see the way that race is playing out and other identities? It could be gender, it could be disability, um, but I think race has been at the forefront of inequity in the US for quite some time, which is why we focus there. And so that's, that's the tools that we're building. How do we help folks build that awareness and how do we help them do something with it when they have that awareness? For this study, as Liza was pointing out, we were, you know, this was the middle of the COVID pandemic. Um, and, you know, teachers spend a lot of time in schools as they're learning to become teachers, as they should, because that's learning, doing practice. Mm -hmm. um, but throughout the pandemic, it was nearly impossible to get into a school um, for any reason. And so for teacher education programs, this was a real challenge. How do we support our students? How do we give them the experiences that they need to learn? And this made the virtual environment really appealing, right? This could be a low cost, effective, safe way to give teachers real practice um, without maybe risking the health of students or the health of our teachers. And so this isn't as much my expertise. I know Liza will talk about it a bit more because she was the one working with the simulations, but that was what got us connected was her work in this virtual space and thinking about equity, which is what we've been doing with equip. Mm. Um, and so in this particular context, the, the mixed reality simulations essentially has an actor in the background that plays the roles of five students. The teacher or teacher educator can give some sort of task to the students, sample work, what they did on the problems, and then the actor enacts some particular roles that is supposed to emulate real students. And some of the, the profiles are given by the software company and then training sort of gets passed along by previous generations of actors. And so what we found this, you know, this could have been a really good idea, but the enactment of this idea was problematic. Hmm. And, you know, rather than giving every student a fair chance to really shine in the math class, we found sort of the same tired stereotypes about math, right? Some kids can do math, some just aren't math people. Um, you know, Asians understand everything about math, the, mm. the black and brown kids in the class were, were not understanding it. Um, you know, these are just, it's just false, right? These, these stereotypes are just wrong, uh, but they're also problematic because in mathematics, math is so closely tied to conceptions of intelligence. And so there's a very long legacy of using math as a way to promote eugenics or enslavement or really to justify some really horrible, horrible things throughout history. And so drawing on those stereotypes, given that legacy, is, is very problematic. Um, but, you know, like Liza and I are scientists, so we're not 
we're not just grounding this in gut impression, but we want to think about how could we take rigorous methodologies to both unpack the stereotypes and then unpack the, the impact on teachers. Mm. And so what we found, uh, as we would predict, sort of based on the educational research, is that in alignment with the stereotype behaviors, the students who were positioned as good at math, you know, the white students, the Asian students, the teachers interacted with them in a way that they expected them to do well. They asked them meaningful questions. They probed into their thinking. And on the flip side, for the students that they didn't expect to do well, it was a lot of classroom management and, and not really getting into their thinking, but sort of just trying to control them. So let's do the uh, headline length summary of what you just said. The, the finding here just to reiterate, would be what? Yeah, we found these virtual simulations reinforce stereotypes and that reinforced racial and gender inequity in math classes. Yeah. Can we, you shared with me an example and I would love to actually um, have you go through this. Is it, uh, do you want to just read it or uh, explain? I can take a role. Liza can take a role. Sure, I can be a teacher. Um, would you like to be Rahul? <laughs> Liza can be Mia, I guess. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. And so, so to give context for this excerpt, and if you read the paper, you can find more of them. We just wanted to share a little clip of the types of interactions that we found in the simulations. So you can really get a sense of what we're talking about when we say stereotype behavior. Mm. So, so here I'm going to be the teacher um, and I have two students with me. So this is some problem we were working on. Did you guys work together well or were there any problems? Did you guys agree with each other or do we have separate opinions? And I'm playing the role of Mia. I mean, Raul let me draw the cute little kitties. So I was happy, but he did like all of the math because, you know, he likes that stuff. Oh, okay. Well, Rahul, how did you think it went? Well, I really did enjoy doing all of the math. I wanted to do it. It was great working with, you know, a nerd. Um, I'm not an actor by any means, but it gives you it gives you a moment into an, an actor's life where you have to take on roles that are very uncomfortable. Like this was this was unsettling um, to even like read a script that um, perpetuates some of this stuff. So I think the example is extremely helpful. Yeah, I would just say um, so after these simulations, I had them in my office so that they would have like a quiet space and they would come back to class or if class wasn't going on, they'd come meet me in my classroom and, you know, like you experienced, Mark, where you have this sense of this doesn't seem right and it's awkward, but they were kind of like laughing about it, but they were like, this isn't right. So I think we can be very clear um, that for the students of color, they were genuinely seen as disruptive and not on task mm. and exhibiting the same problematic behaviors um, in that episode we just enacted. And I think moreover that episode is just average. There's a lot more like that in what we found. And, and some of them are a lot more problematic than that one. So yeah. that just gives you a, a taste of it. Yeah. I think another important headline here that, that we're not going to have a lot of time to talk about, but I think that there is a miss 
perception often when we talk about um, culturally responsive curriculum and the need for this kind of thinking. I, I think a lot of people think of math as being uh, agnostic and being a space where, you know, like numbers are, um, you know, if, if you want the culturally responsive stuff, I'm role-playing, like keep it to social studies. Um, like what, you know, what does math have to do with any of that? And, and I think part of what was so important to me about your study and about the equip tool and, and the work that you all have set out to do is that, um, it, helps us to realize that there are practical applications in every, no matter what the context where there is a dynamic of learning in, in a space or a system where um, there is an educator and a student, um, this applies and there is a growing body of evidence that it applies, uh, which means, which is really good news, right? Because it means that as learning designers, as technologists, as um, math educators, it means that we can do more about it, right? And and maybe until we could reflect on some of these things through a mode like a virtual simulation, who knows uh, whether we would be able to scale some of the realizations you two are making. So. So I just want to emphasize something that Daniel brought up to me early on, which is uh, that this there there's a lot of good news um, here. And while we don't want to paint a picture um, that you know spotting spotting bias in this context is is not good news, but the good news is that uh, there's a lot we can do about it, and there's research that's happening that will help us to course correct. And and researchers like the two of you. Um, who are going to help us sort of put some of those ideas to practice. So anyway, that's a, a long way of saying uh, thank you for for what I think is really important work. Liza, I saw a testimonial you did about why teacher education is so critical. And you estimated that a typical secondary math teacher teaches about 3,000 students in a course of their career. And I think that that was a conservative estimate. It also puts into perspective how many students are impacted when one educator receives training that continues to perpetuate values and biases that we know to be detrimental. So it emphasizes why your research is so important. What's the scale of virtual or simulated training programs right now? So according to uh, communications with a marketing representative from the platform provider in 2021, uh, the provider delivered about 20,000 experiences and they were forecasted to exceed 40,000 in 2022. Anecdotally, several of my colleagues at other institutions continue to use them in 2023, but I don't have any data for this year. Mm-hmm. So I have math researchers, but no, um, I need a, uh, let's, let's do some calculation here. 40,000, um, let's say it stopped at 40,000 in 2022, uh, and your number is right, that it's 3,000 uh, 3, young people in an educator's career. I can't, I can, uh, I'd need a calculator to, to do that math. Um, that is substantial scale, right? And uh, 
So when we go out onto the floor of a conference where there is ed tech and, and shiny, these shiny objects that promise uh, lots of scale and improvement in our practice, um, it's important to realize that that scale comes with great responsibility and, and way better understanding about uh, what it is we're getting right in those environments and what it is we're, we're just perpetuating that's, that's kind of old baggage, right? Can we talk quickly? It seems really important to understand what a noticing framework is. This was a phrase that I was not uh, aware of, and it feels like I need to do a little bit of learning. What's, why is it important in teacher training? Um, so teacher noticing is a construct in teacher education that has received a lot of attention over the years. And it's sort of this idea of breaking in noticing into three constructs, attending to student thinking, interpreting that thinking, and then responding to it. And so this is based on the idea that students aren't blank slates, but if we want to teach them, we have to surface their ideas, bring them out publicly, and then build on them. And so having these components in the framework helps teachers decompose those aspects of their practice so they can work on them. In our own work with Equip, we've really focused on noticing and noticing these, these subtle phenomena because we know um, sometimes it's just hard to see our own biases or it's hard to see the inequities that happen in the classroom. And so our goal is to generate data about that that's useful and actionable for teachers so they can change their teaching. And I, I think I can't understate how having the disaggregated data tells me what's happening for my black students, what's happening for my emergent multilingual students, what's happening for women, allows me to see patterns that I otherwise couldn't see. Hmm. And this is, this is especially key if we want to talk about difficult issues like racial inequity. It's hard for folks to talk about race. It's just a challenging thing. It's especially difficult for white teachers um, to talk about that. And Understandably, folks can get defensive about that. And so when we have the data, it allows us to have a different conversation. We're not making accusations. We're not judging somebody. We're just trying to say, hey, this is what we notice is happening in the classroom. We're on the same team. Could we do something about this? What are practices that we could use? And it turns out we found that approach works really well. We've you know, worked with uh, hundreds of educators at this point using this model to help them work in communities of peers to get real data about their teaching, reflect on those data, and then develop concrete strategies. And then we can actually use the very same tools that's supporting their learning to measure an impact on their students and see how things become more equitable. So, um, Liza, can either one of you, can, can you describe a little bit of the Equip experience? So, um, who am I if I'm interested in Equip, and, uh, and what can I do with it? So, I can speak from my experience with Equip. Um, I initially did a self-study, so I video recorded. There's like a camera up in the corner on the ceiling. So, or you could just use your laptop, your phone, whatever. I video recorded and a portion of um, my lesson, just like the debrief. So like where I'm trying to facilitate um, some conversation because as the teacher, I hold a lot of power mm. um, in, in positioning students 
um, as members of the learning community or not. So I thought, I'm wonderful. Everyone is going to participate exactly the same. And also initially, I thought that that was the goal I should aspire to. Um, so anyway, um, I uncovered actually that um, in my in my self study uh, that I was affording more opportunities um, to my black students, particularly black females. Um, and I I sorted this out and discussed it with Danielle and Nyral. Um, and we kind of um, it led to a modification of my own personal definition of what equity is, because initially I thought equity is everyone exactly the same. And then you have to think of like histories. I'm working with college students. So 20 years um, of maybe not being afforded opportunities to participate. So, yeah, as a self-study, um, it, it, it enabled me to quantify participation patterns in my classroom. And then I started using it with pre-service teachers um, where we would, as Daniel mentioned, um, kind of in a little professional learning community, debrief uh, some of their small um, facilitations of conversations. Anything you want to add to that, Daniel? Um, no, that's that's really wonderful. And I, I really appreciate the work that folks like Liza are doing. I appreciate the, fo the work that you're doing with this podcast, because when we think about issues like racial justice um, or gender inequities and things like that in the country, it's, it's really something that everybody has to be a part of. Right. We all have to think about where we're coming from where maybe where we have power, where we can step in and also where we need to step back. And so I'm really grateful just to work with folks um, like you that we can we can have these conversations together. Hmm. I think it's so, Liza, I think uh, one of the reasons I'm so excited to um, amplify the work in whatever way that I can is that I think that your journey as an educator is such an important one. And I think that there's a level of courage and commitment that you demonstrate um, just by talking about your own experience and what you thought would be the outcome of your lesson as, you know, an experienced educator and what was the, what was the actual truth. And it wasn't that there was, there was what I just gleaned from what you said and tell me if I'm misinterpreting was not that, not that you felt um, like it was like a, a gotcha moment, it was a, you had now a tool for reflective practice that puts you into a more equipped, pun intended, a more empowered position to get even more badass about your job, which I think, um, I just think is the work, right? Like this is, uh, takes an amazing amount of, of courage to talk about and, and sort of make transparent and, um, yeah, I'm just excited to celebrate it. Um, we're running out of time. So I want to ask you both. I understand through citations on some of your previous work that there's good evidence that pre-service teachers notice more through video. So I would imagine it's not a huge leap to assume that when we put trainings into simulations, uh, the assumption is that we can get a lot of that benefit while also minimizing the extra work and disruption of shooting video in the classroom, et cetera. Is this the biggest reason um, that we think that VR and teacher training will be beneficial 
And and are there benefits that I'm missing, or is or is this the the big one that educators talk about, uh, especially for educator trainers like yourself, Liza? Yeah, uh, I think we want to maximize the authenticity of practicing practice. <laughs> Uh, so whether it's like a representation of praxis, practice or an approximation of practice, uh, we can kind of like place them along a continuum of authenticity. Mm. So like, for example, maybe the least to most authentic would be like text, such as a sample of student work or a lesson plan or a transcript from an enacted lesson, and then maybe video uh, which could be like a one-on-one -on -one cognitive interview um, or small group or whole class facilitation um, might be a little bit more authentic. Uh, and then in my opinion, the mixed reality simulations like we studied um, would be like the next most authentic experience along this progression. Um, and it's debatable whether this is more or less authentic than rehearsals where other adults uh, play the roles of students. Um, and then finally, the most authentic would probably be in-person field experiences. Um, but even within that space, um, there's room to kind of dial up or dial down the authenticity knob. Mm. Uh, like maybe by uh, having pre-service teachers assume more or less responsibility um, and us as teacher educators uh, supporting them more or less. Um, so I think there's like affordances and constraints of mixed reality simulations. Um, and in our article, we say that the behaviors we observed were a combination of the platform provider's avatar character profiles, the interactor's training program, the particular interactor's improvisation, and the tasks and student work samples provided by us. And we cannot disentangle the role of any of these specific ingredients in producing the results that we found. So in my opinion, a key principle is the potential to improve mixed reality simulations. And I think a key to that is participatory design. Hmm. Um, the disability movement kind of popularized the notion of nothing about us without us. And that came decades ago. And I think this is so true. So if I could go back in time, um, that would be something that I would definitely incorporate. Um, and I invite the listener to think um, about their own identity markers and and ponder on how would you feel if someone with different identity markers designed and enacted an avatar with your identity markers? <laughs> so um, there are a lot of folks who are doing amazing work in this space. Um, such as Elizabeth Self um, and Barbara Stengel. Um, I know that, and they're at Vanderbilt, um, and Justin Reich, um, Gregory Benoy, and Aaron Barno uh, with MIT Teacher Moments. Um, and they are using this participatory design um, in their work. Great. Thank you. And I'll, I'll link to all of them or what I can find of their work online, if not just their bios, so people can go and um, dig into more of that work. What are the takeaways for the two of you that you think should motivate future work and understanding, not only um, on the part of researchers, but also of practitioners? Take a leap of faith. Uh, study yourself first. 
because we um, are not experts until we self-examine and whatnot. Um, and I still don't consider myself an ex an expert. Uh, equity is going to be a lifetime journey for me. Um, for practitioners, what do you think some of the outcomes of this initial research should motivate? Um, so it sounds like self-study is one of the things you think um, should be a bigger part of the early uh, either pre-service or in-service, you know, educator training opportunity. Are there other um, other things that you would you would if if the next project came, say there was a funded next project that fell into your lap right now that felt like a perfect next step from this work? Uh, let's say we can like wish it into being. What would it be? Yeah, so uh, the elements that I would put in my next project, my dream project, uh, would be starting with self-study, um, investing time long-term, uh, fostering and developing and maintaining sincere, authentic relationships, uh, using participatory design, um, and not just going on um, willy-nilly how you feel about how things went, really looking at data using uh, the equip so that you can really quantify what, you, what you're getting a feeling about. Nice. How about you, Daniel? Is there like a, a dream next project for you that, that you feel like this would be the perfect leverage for? I would love to take this work and, and look at scale, right? Looking back 10 years, the motivation for building this tool and, and using it with teachers was supporting students and reducing those inequities in the classroom. So to be able to bring that um, with proper funding, a proper team, and really work with groups of teachers building on their expertise and their context, that would be the dream. Outstanding. So um, as a, as a uh, send-off for the episode, and you reflect, so, so we're at a really unique moment in time, and I've been having conversations lately with, um, with some educators and educator trainers and, uh, and other folks just about, uh, you know, all of us are in our own space and thinking about areas like simulation and AI, uh, virtual, um, virtual realities, uh, XR, you know, there's like all of these, these things at the same time, um, you know, there's great hope in our digital future. Um, I wonder where the two of you land. So as you reflect on this moment in time where we are in the digital age, and with what you know from your work and time in the field, are you optimistic about the future of learning? My feelings are mixed. So I love the technologies and I really think we have some incredible opportunities to leverage these technologies to really improve education and make things more equitable. At the same time, it all comes down to intentionality. And that, and that really connects to teaching, right? Teaching doesn't happen in a vacuum. We can have any type of content, but who we are, who our students are, how we relate, 
all of that mediates the whole process. And the same with the technology. We could take these technologies and apply them in the same way we saw the simulation that we studied and reinforce the same inequities that are already there. Hmm. And maybe we do it in a faster, more efficient way, which is probably not helpful. But if we did this with intention, I think there is real potential to actually reduce the inequities that are out there. But that requires us to move beyond just finding the next thing, scaling it up, you know, maybe making a lot of money in the process or whatever it would be to sort of look beyond ourselves and think about what is our impact and what is the legacy that we want to leave on education in whatever small way we can contribute to that. Hmm. Liza, how about you? I would echo Daniel's sentiment. Um, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, I have deep respect for educators, um, and I know Daniel does too, as educators. Um, we know that uh, we're passionate about our students. We want them to thrive, to know, to use, to enjoy math. Um, but sometimes that intentionality has a different impact. So just, um, I, I really want to dream of a future where we're able to make those connections between the intentionality and the impact and uh, be self-aware and reflective enough to continue to grow um, in our work um, and just have a world where each and every human being feels like they belong and are a math person. Mm. What a nice place to, uh, to land a, a good dream that everyone envisions themselves a uh, math person. Daniel Reinholz, Liza Bondurant, thank you so much for your work. And uh, I hope you'll come back and share more when these, uh, these dream projects land in your lap after we've had this conversation and put it out into the world. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us, Mark. It was really a pleasure. Thank you so much. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy. A guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser. A learner like you and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. 